Hello everyone and welcome back to the True Crime Friday podcast. It's my week this week, if you can't tell, because I'm doing the disclaimer. And this might be a long one, I can't tell, this might take a while. Uh, but this is a big episode, hope you're going to enjoy it. As you can tell by the title, this is a, yeah, this is going to be a big one. So before we get into this episode, let me do the usual disclaimer. Uh, this episode will contain mentions of murder, violence, sexual assault, rape that some people may find offensive, and also mentions of cults. If this is the case, this might not be the episode for you if you are uncomfortable with it, which is completely understandable and completely okay. And there are more lighter-hearted episodes if you want to go check those out as well. But yeah, let's get into the life of Charles Manson. Hello. Hi. Hi. You good? Yes, I'm good. I was on time today and Matt wasn't, guys. I was on time. He was 30 minutes late. No. Time got pushed back. I, sorry, I ate, sorry. I ate really early, so I, I I was making sure I was prepared, but, you know, whatever. But I did, but I apologise. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's good. We good, but we've got a big one today. We've got, we've got, we've got, we got a big boy case. Oh, I thought you were going to say a big boy. Need a big boy. It's cuffing season. Don't know if you'd want to um, have this guy with you during cuffing season. I'm not going to lie. Don't think you want this guy. Um, we're going to be covering the, the life, the fucking mad shit. And uh, the crimes of um, Charles Manson. Oh, one big. <laughs> oh, big. Let's do this one big. We're not only just going to be going into the life of Charles Manson, but I do have some backstory and some bits of childhood from members of the family, the key members of the family, because um, the family was huge. Obviously, uh, it was a massive cult that was ran by Charles Manson but there were key people in the family that committed the crimes that Charles Manson is most known for and the interesting thing with Charles Manson is that he has never killed anyone he did not commit a murder but he organised a murder and got other people to do it but he never actually committed the murder himself. Yeah, there's stuff to this case that I do know um, due to me being into music, which I might add and touch upon if you don't have it, because I was finding I the music part. I do have part. it. I do have it. Oh, do you have both? Do you have both parts? I think I do. Um, we'll get into it when it gets up. It's going to be Yeah, long. but that's, that's the parts I knew. But I, I also did know that he... Um, organize this stuff but i wasn't sure what he entirely did so so yeah we're gonna get into that um so going into charles manson's childhood um it's pretty shit it's a pretty shit childhood um so he was born charles miles manson on the 12th of november 1943 in cincinnati ohio now technically he wasn't born charles miles manson because when he was born he actually didn't have a name his mother was a 15-year-old uh, woman named Kathleen Maddox, and his father was Colonel Scott. Uh, Sorry, 15-year-old was his mum? Yes. 
that's all kinds of wrong to start with. In 1943, especially, like it's it's, it's, oh, not, it's, no. not, it's, it's not good now, but even in 1943, definitely not good. Um, so basically, his father was a laborer, and he was actually married to another woman and had an affair with Kathleen, which resulted in Charles, with Charlie. Uh, shortly after having him, Kathleen actually married a man named Manson, a man with the last name Manson. So this is when she decided to give her son a name, and his birth certificate simply. So basically, when he was actually born, sorry, before she gave him a name, his birth certificate actually read "No Name Maddox." So he, like literally, his name on his birth certificate was "No Name." Well, I, I thought you had to give a child a name. I thought you couldn't go without giving a child a name. Well, technically, if you write on the birth certificate, no name, his t- his name technically would be no name. No name, yeah. So he's... <laughs> Damn! He was technically born no name Maddox. But then when she got married to a man with the last name Manson, she named him Charles... Uh, Charlie Manson. So would she would she have had to gone through the legal procedure to actually change his name because what's written on the birth certificate? I'm gonna guess so when she got married, yeah, because she probably would have changed her own name, so she probably that, just did the same thing. I can understand why people take a long time to decide on baby names because once it's on the sheet, you know, um, obviously it's like in the skits on Family Guy where Meg's name's Megatron. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of or like... you know, Bar- it's Barth Mallow, not actually Barth is a shortened version of it, but you know. I can't believe that he's called is no name. Yeah. So Kathleen was from Ashland, Kentucky, and she was the youngest born to a she was the youngest to a very religious couple. So when she got pregnant at fifteen, it was not great, and she'd run off to the big city not long before getting pregnant. And she was a pretty much she didn't have a good life either. And um, she was an alcoholic, and she was also a sex worker. She was also a very neglectful mother. Once, um, this is not even a joke, she actually exchanged Charlie for a pint of beer. Wait, what? Yeah, she wanted she wanted a drink, uh, she couldn't afford it, and she basically said to the waitress, I will trade you my son for this beer. And the waitress was like, okay. So I mean, all I want to say is like, morals... Uh, thrown out the window there and the fact that this person is willingly trading their child for a beer. What the fuck? This is like, must be like a um, 15, 16 year old girl as well, bear in mind. This isn't a grown woman, this is a 16 year old child. I mean... She's exchanged her baby for a for a beer. Like, beer, beer, I like beer as much as the next person. Not that much. Like, Definitely. Yeah, that's bad. I mean, I know some of that stuff technically still goes on today when people sell their children away for money, i.e. slavery and the sex slavery stuff, which is yeah. horrible. Yeah, yeah. That, that even still goes on. But the fact, you know, you have to be really low to sell away your own child for something that is drug-related or something within that realm. Oh, yeah, 1,000%. So... Um, Charlie was actually left with this waitress for several days. Like, he was literally with this waitress for several days at this point. And he didn't really get brought back to his mum until, like, a member of uh, her family, I think it was either her brother or her sister, 
collected him. So obviously the marriage to the marriage to Manson didn't last, and she continued to party and run and just do a lot of illegal sh- illegal shit. She was actually arrested at one point in nineteen. 19- she was actually arrested at one point for armed robbery. That she and this is a crime that she committed with her brother Luther, and she was sentenced to five years in prison. And her brother and her son was given to her sister. Now is. Now his aunt Glenda and her husband Bill Thomas lived in West Virginia with their daughter Joe, uh, and their three. Uh, he was like three years uh, younger than Charlie. Uh, they were in a very small mining town in West Virginia, and this was like it's just a very yeah very very tiny uh, small town. It was right. Ne- it wasn't too far away um, from the prison that Kathleen was serving a sentence because. Uh, because Glenna and Bill really wanted Charlie to be able to see his mum as often as he possibly could. Now, the Thomases tried to provide Charlie with a stable home life, but Charlie had two issues working against him. First, everyone knew about his birth without a father and his mother's criminal activity and viewed him as a nuisance from the get-go. Second, Charlie was a pathological liar even at the age of five and he was very selfish, but then again, he's five years old. I kind of would say that a lot of five-year-olds lie and can be a bit selfish because they don't understand things at that age so i wouldn't really just say oh this cut this kid's a dick it's just like it's it's it's, it's a child i mean if five years old you told you told a few clipes when you were five like pathological liar could be so depending on your views on it could be like a few white lies and you could be like they're a pathological liar. it depends how much of a narcissist and like a pain in the ass you are and also, people can say that you're a liar when you're not. Many times growing up, I I had the unfortunateness yeah. of my mom, my, my mom telling me, "Oh, Matthew, you clipping again?" After I've just said something, or oh, you know, I'm I'm not a liar. You know, we all lie, but I hate it when growing up where I would just say something, and mom would just instantly assume my dad was saying, "Oh, you clipping, telling on someone else, you lying," sort of thing. It's like no. I feel you like one, one of those as well. Like I don't know about anyone else, but I, when I get really nervous or uncomfortable, I just naturally smile or laugh. So, and that's just not even like, oh, I'm lying. It's just you're staring at me and you're yelling at me and I feel uncomfortable and I just start automatically laughing out of nervousness and uncomfortableness. And it's not me lying. I'm just genuinely not comfortable. And I, that's the first thing I go to do. So, yeah, I've had this before. Um, So I wouldn't, I would not put being a pathological liar and selfish against him. He probably just didn't know how to share, which is like no fucking five-year-old does. So he tried to... He tried to be good. tried to turn on the charm. He tried to be like a nice kid, but no one was really... No one in the town was really buying it and they just kind of saw him as a nuisance because of his mum. And that opinion never changes. Never changes. Uh, Bill Thomas's uncle was a hard-drinking man who worked for the railroad and thought Charlie needs to toughen up. When Charlie ran home crying from his first day of school because he was game bullied, his uncle was disgusted. The next day, he forced his nephew to walk to school in a dress to show Charlie not to be a sissy. That's going to help everything, yes, 100%. Especially in, like, the 1940s and 50s. Like, dude. <laughs> his, aunt, his auntie Glenna, uh, like her... Like, um... His mother held very strict, uh, no, sorry, his aunt Glenna, much like Charlie's grandmother, held very strict, very strict and religious beliefs and expected the children to be seen and not heard. I hate people who do that. 
Charlie's personality quirks turn into such a turn into such a blown and narcissistic disorder while living with the Thomases. This ended up carrying on pretty much throughout his life. Like what they the the way they got him to act caused a lot of issues. Now Charlie was also a bedwetter for much of his childhood, and it's likely that he received a lot of punishment for bedwetting. Wouldn't surprise me if he's getting bullied and he's crying. Of course, he's going to get beaten for bedwetting. That's not going to be a shock. Shouldn't be that way, but clearly these guys are cunts. Now, in an interview with Diane Sawyer, Manson said that he was only nine years old when he set his school on fire. He also got in trouble for truancy and petty theft. Although there was a lack of foster home placements, in 1947, at the age of 13, Manson was placed in the in the Gibbalt School for Boys in Indiana. And this was a school for male delinquents run by Catholic priests. It was a strict school where punishment for even the tiniest little thing included beatings with either a wooden paddle or a leather strap. Now, I'm not going to lie, I know a few people that wouldn't hate that they're listening to this and they know who they are Manson ran away from the school and slept in the woods under bridges and wherever else he could find shelter he ran back home uh, when his mother got out of prison and spent Christmas in 1947 in that same town with his aunts and uncles his mother returned him to the school and 10 months later he ran away to Indianapolis in 1948 in in Indianapolis Manson committed his first known crime by robbing a grocery store now the thing is, when it's getting to this point, like he's probably robbing. Like I'm never gonna really defend Charles Manson, but he's robber. He's robbing the grocery store purely to live. He's run away. He is a child. But he's literally a child, and like yeah, he's but he's clearly doing it to survive. At uh, first, the robbery was simply to find something to eat. However, Manson found a cigar box containing just over a hundred dollars, and he took the money. He used the money to rent a room on Indianapolis on Indianapolis in Indianapolis's Skid Row and to buy food. Skid Row. Whenever I hear Skid Row, I immediately have to go mm. Skid Row. I knew that was coming as soon as you said that. Here we go. You've gone wild. Right, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for a time, Manson tried to go straight by getting a job delivering messages for the Western Union. However, he quickly began to supplement his wages through petty theft. He was eventually caught and he and a judge sent him to Boys Town, a juvenile facility, a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska. After four days at Boys Town, he and fellow student Blackie Nelson got got hold of a gun and stole a car. They used it to commit two armed robberies and on their way to on the way to the, um, Nelson's uncle's home in Indiana in, in Illinois, Nelson's uncle Nelson's uncle was a professional thief and when the boys arrived he allegedly took them on as apprentices very weird apprenticeship there manson was arrested two weeks later after during a nighttime raid of a shop in the investigation that followed he was linked to his two earlier armed robberies and he was sent to the indiana indiana boys school a strict reform school now I don't know about anyone else, but boys' schools and any schools that are ran by anything religious tend, especially during this period of time, tend to not be great. No. At the school, other students allegedly raped Manson with the encouragement of a staff member and he was repeatedly beaten. He ran away from the school 18 times. While at the school, Manson developed a self-defense technique he later called the insane game. 
where he, when he was physically unable to defend himself, he would screech, grimace, and wave his arms to convince aggressors that he was insane. After a number of failed attempts, he escaped with two other boys in February 1951. The three escapees were robbing a stolen car across state lines, and Manson was sent to Washington, D.C.'s National Training School for Boys. On arrival, he was given aptitude tests, which determined that he was illiterate, but had an above-average IQ of 109. His caseworker deemed him aggressively antisocial. I feel like that's how people view me sometimes, aggressively antisocial, which, you know what, fair play. On a psychiatrist's recommendation, Manson was transferred, transferred in October 1951 to Neutral Bridge Honor Camp, a minimum security institution. His auntie visited him and told administrators she would let him stay at her house and would help him find work. Manson had a parole hearing scheduled for February 1952, however in January he was caught raping a boy at knife point. He was transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia, where he committed a further eight serious disciplinary offences, three involving homosexual acts. He was then moved to a maximum security reformatory uh, in Ohio where he was expected to remain until his release on his 21st birthday in November. And it says 1955, I'm pretty sure. Uh, good behaviour led to an early release and this, he was then sent to live with his auntie and uncle. In January 1955, Manson married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis. Around October, around October, about three months after afterwards, him and his wife, him and his now pregnant wife, arrived in Los Angeles in a car that he had stolen from Ohio. He was then obviously charged with a, with a federal crime for taking the car across state lines. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was given five years probation. His failure to appear at a Los Angeles hearing on an, on an on, on an identical charge filed in Florida resulted in his March 1956 arrest in Indianapolis. His probation was revoked and he was sentenced to three years in prison at Terminal Island, San Pedro, California. While Manson was in prison, Rosalie gave birth to their son, Charles Manson Jr. During his first year at Terminal Island, Manson received visits from Rosalie and his mother, who are now living together in Los Angeles. In March 1957, when the visits from his wife uh, started to toned down, his mother informed him Rosalie was living with another man. Less than two weeks before a scheduled parole, parole hearing, Manson tried to escape by stealing a car and he was given five years probation and his parole was denied. Thought so he's fucking up a bit here, but that also does confirm something for you all. There is a... There is a his son. He has a son. Because it was always like... Yeah, to be fair, there's rumours that he has quite a few kids. Yeah, there probably is people that are his children, but you'd never outright say, "Oh, I'm the child of," because yeah. you would just you just wouldn't want that the the heavy weight on you and mm. the public backlash and everyone out for you, you know. Yeah, exactly. You just wouldn't want to deal with that unless you're like, unless his kid ends up being a bit of an attention seeker, just exactly like him. Yeah. But I highly doubt that. So Manson got five years parole in September 1958, the same year in which Rosalie received a, de a degree of, div of divorce, so they were no longer married. By November, he was pimping a 16-year-old girl and receiving additional support from a girl with wealthy parents. So 
this isn't this like he, he he escalates in a way it's just it's just weird the way he does it in september 1959 he pleaded guilty to a charge of attempting to cash a forged u.s treasury check which he claims to have stolen from a mailbox the charge was later dropped he received a 10-year suspended sentence on probation after a young woman named Leona, who had an arrest record for prostitution, made a tearful plea before the court that she and Manson were deeply in love and would marry Charlie if, if he was set free. Before the year was up, Leona did marry Manson, possibly so she could not be required to testify against him. Manson then took Leona and another woman to New Mexico for purposes of sex work, resulting in him being held and questions were violating the Man Act. Though he was released, Manson correctly suspended, suspected that the investigation had not ended. When he disappeared in, viola in violation of his probation, a bench warrant was issued. After an indictment for a violation of the Mann Act followed in, April 19, followed in April 1960. Following the arrest of one of the women for sex work, Manson was arrested in June in Texas and was returned to Los Angeles. After vi for violating his probation on the check cashing charge, he was ordered to serve a 10-year sentence. Now, obviously, he doesn't serve a 10-year sentence. And he was obviously eventually released. So, he was in and out of prison quite a fair bit. Leona did get a divorce, and she, and, but she did say that her and Manson had a son named Charles Luther. So, there, there's another. There's another. In June 1966, Manson was sent down for the second time to Terminal Island for preparation for an early release. So he's obviously still in prison at this point. We got ways him back in prison by this point. By the time of his release day on the 21st of March 1967, he had spent more than half of his 32 years of life in prisons and other institutions. And this is because mostly like federal laws. It was like little things. It was a lot of just federal laws. Well, no, he did rape a few people in, like when he was a child, but like it's a lot of mostly federal laws that's the reason why he was in and out of prison now one thing that um he did say before his final release was that he didn't want to leave prison he said to the authorities that prison had become his home and that he wanted to stay there because a lot he, of people do feel like that though yeah he felt like if he was released committing crimes aren't gonna stop and he just would rather just have a routine and stay in prison and he doesn't really want to go anywhere else. And he said to them, if you release me from prison, then it's just going to get worse. They released him from prison. And this is when his little cult begins. So he got discharged from prison in 1967. And this is when he began attracting a group of followers, mostly young women from around California, and they would be later known as the Manson family. Now, the core members of Manson's group included Charles Tex Watson, uh, a musician and former a musician and former actor Robert Busoli, a former musician and porn actor Mary Brunner, Susan Atkins, uh, Linda Kasabian, uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. We're going to go into quite a few of these people because they've got their own backstories and it's very confusing for a few of them and how they got to where they are. But a lot of them have a very similar theme. Wow, Van Houten, ruining the name. I I, I don't assume the Simpsons stole that last name from okay. Millhouse's family, but 
I'm gonna guess not. So we're gonna start off with one of the other with one of the members who wasn't mentioned just then, called Lynette Squeaky From. Do you wanna know why she's called Squeaky? Because her voice is raspy or something squeaky from cigarettes? It's because of the noise that she'd make when Manson was having sex with her. Surely that's is that not the bed? What? No. Is, no, is the squeaking no, noise not the bed? No, it's what she would make. She'd make a squeak like noise. And I don't know how like like how. But like alright. But yeah, apparently she made like I don't 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 I mean don't do Maybe that's a bit maybe that's a bit of a turn off, not gonna lie. Like, yeah, like I was thinking that I was like, uh no. So, <laughs> well, I can't say much, but I I do not I don't think someone uh, no, no. making squeaky noises is is, is 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 I mean it's not normal. No, it's not I mean Squeak, 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 squeak. Someone like, I don't know. So Lynette from is an is an American criminal who was from who was a member of the Manson family. She was born in Santa Monica, California, on the twenty second of October, nineteen forty eight, to middle class parents. She was a typical all American girl. She was a very sweet child who enjoyed playing outside with her friends and being quite active. As a young girl, she joined the Westchester Lariats, a well known dance group in the area, and in the late nineteen fifties. Lynette and the Westchesters began touring the US and Europe. So she was getting, she was, she kind of had a very bright future, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, she went to Los Angeles to perform on the on the Lawrence Welk show and later to Washington DC to perform at the White House. But the good girl personality didn't last very long. And in 1963, when she was only 14 years old, her parents moved to Renando Beach, California. Uh, if you don't know how Renando Beach is, it's, it's, it's a very wealthy area like um best way to describe Ronaldo beach in my head is i'm pretty sure vince neil from motley crew owned a house there in i think about 1984 so there you go i like how i know that so she quickly fell in with the wrong crowd and her family as her family said and began drinking and using drugs before long her grades slipped and she found herself suffering from depression she was in her first year of college when her father, a an engineer, kicked her out, apparently because she was just out of control. By 1967, she was homeless, depressed, and looking for an escape. Charles Manson found Lynette on the shores of Renando Beach in 1967. Despite the fact that he had just recently been released from prison, uh, Lynette became obsessed with Manson. She fell in love with his philosophies and attitude towards life later calling him a once-in-a-lifetime soul. Uh, he said to her, don't want out and you're free during their first encounter. He said, the want ties you up, be where you are, you gotta start somewhere. And that would be a really great quote if it didn't come from Charles Manson. Within days, she'd become a Manson family member. She travelled with Manson himself and by association became friends with fellow members Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner. She apparently didn't like Patricia. There was a lot of um, him sleeping with pretty much everyone kind of thing going on. So there was a lot of jealousy in the family. So Mary Brunner uh, was born on the 17th of December 1943 in Wisconsin. She is a former member of the Charles Manson family. Brunner acquired a number of aliases such as Marachine, Ooch, Mother Mary, Mary Manson, Linda D. Manson, and Christine Marie Oops. No idea why. 
In April 1968, Brunner gave birth to a child named a child named Valentine Michael Manson. So she has had another. That is three children, by the way. He has now. And she, so, unfortunately, so basically, there's not really much on her early life. But she first met Charles Manson when Manson was 33 and on parole from Terminal Island Prison. She was one of the first vulnerable young women that became one of his followers and allowed him to move into her apartment and then they kind of became a couple she then quit a job and the pair began to drift around california in a van and recruit other various other young women soon after she she was pregnant with charles manson's son obviously she gave birth and they continued to try and grow the family as much as they could when they traveled around the west coast including areas of Nevada and Washington until they eventually settled back in California at Spawn Ranch, which we'll, we'll get into Spawn Ranch. Patricia Cranwinkle was born in Los Angeles, California on the 3rd of December 1947. Her father worked in insurance and her mother was a homemaker. Her and her older half-sister grew up in a suburban working-class neighbourhood and she was very close to her dad. There's no, dad, there's no daddy issues in this at all. Her mother, a former Southern Belle, was very so she was very social and she was very charitable. Uh, Patricia was an animal lover and she had many pets during her childhood, such as dogs, birds, hamsters, and she was obsessed with wildlife. Now, her childhood was had a lot of family troubles, including her parents' unhappy marriage. Uh, apparently, things just weren't the, the, the things weren't great. There was a lot of arguments. Now, obviously, when her parents divorced, Patricia and her mother moved to Alabama, so she moved in with her mum, and she was very much miserable. And she actually returned to Los Angeles to live with her dad to, t- to attend at university after high school. Um, so, sorry, she moved to university high, but after high school, she moved back to Alabama and r- enrolled in a teacher's course. After one semester, she decided she didn't want to be a teacher anymore, so she dropped out and returned back to LA, where she moved in with her sister. And this is when she had a very weird social life. So she became friends with a lot of Marines who were stationed at a camp that she was close to working at. She dated a couple of them, and she was drinking buddies with pretty much all of them. But, um... I'm not gonna lie, it her being friends with a lot of these people actually resulted in her trying LSD for the first time and this is when her life went downhill she was smoking a lot of marijuana hash and already used LSD quite a few times and at that point in her life drinking and abusing drugs became very much a normality Uh, so when sorry (laughs) During all this, obviously she was very vulnerable and had a very much low self-esteem and this is when she met Charles Manson. And he said the words, you should never be ashamed of yourself, of your body, and that you're beautiful. And apparently this made her cry because no one had ever really been nice to her in this way or appreciated this. And she thought from that second onwards that she had met the man of her dreams until a day later when she agreed to go with him and she met the rest of the women in the family which at the time was Mary and Lynette 
but she swallowed her pride and apparently pretended that nothing was wrong and she was fi- and she acted as if she was fine sharing this man who she thought was the love of her life with two other women. Now, bitch, I'm not gonna lie. That, no. Some people it works. Open relationships, yes. But some people it ain't for them. And clearly, love, it won't for you. Yeah, and if a man says something like that, you know, and you think, oh my god, he's my one to love, and then he's with other women, maybe not. And considering the type of person he is, surprise, he said something that nice. It was a way to kind of, like, bring her in. Yeah, kind of that charm that some people can easily fall for. Basically, yeah. So, three days after meeting Charlie and meeting Mary and Lynette, she abandoned her car, her sister, her nephew, her job, and apartment to join Charlie and the other women. Uh, She left her final paycheck and she quit her job and just, yeah, went straight with them. And that was it after that point onwards. Like, these people had normal, fairly normal lives, starts to go downhill a tiny bit and then it just completely does the biggest flip. We're going to go into into Charles Tex Watson now. He was born in Farmersville, Texas on the 20th, sorry, on the 2nd of December 1945 and grew up in nearby Copeville. He was the youngest of three children. He grew up attending the Copeville Methodist Church. At Farmsville High School, Watson was an honor student, editor of the school paper, captain of the football team, and set a state record for high hurdles. Sounds like the perfect, like this guy's gonna go far in life, right? In September 1964, he moved to Denton, Texas to attend the University of North Texas, where he became a member of Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity. When funds started to run low, Watson took a job with an airline as a baggage handler. He got free flights as the perk of the job, so he flew to Los Angeles about eight times in two months to visit, like, old fraternity brothers. Whilst he was there, he was entranced by the hippie counterculture on the West Coast, which at the time was very, very common. Watson decided to move there, and this is where he met Charles Manson. Now, he actually did attend Cal State in Los Angeles with the idea of earning his degree, but he dropped out less than a semester later to enjoy the hippie lifestyle. He got a job selling wigs and got his fraternity buddy David Neal a job at the same store. One evening he was driving and he pitched up a hitchhiker. Uh, sorry, where am I? Yeah, he picked up a uh, hitchhiker. Now, the hitchhiker was... Uh, so this... This is like where you might jump in on this. Because this is when, if, if anyone is familiar with this, um, but this is when we get Dennis Wilson into the into the situation. Dennis, yeah. Dennis Wilson want, was the... Uh, well, Dennis, well, this is when he, they were driving he picked up, and he picked up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker was actually Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, the drummer. He then directed Watson to his home on Sunset Boulevard in the Pacific uh, area of Los Angeles. Charles Watson was shocked when he pulled up because the place was fucking huge and far different from his modest home in Texas and even more surprised to be invited in. 
In the living room, Watson found a man sitting on the floor with his guitar surrounded by five or six young women. He looked up and Watson later recalled Watson later recalled, and the first thing I felt was a sort of gentleness and embracing kind of acceptance and love. They were all stone, dude. That's all it was. They were fucking baked. Another man at the house introduced introduced them. This is Charlie, Charlie Manson. They all got stoned together and Watson was hooked, but not on drugs, at least not at first. It was the first sense of community that drew him in. Manson's family also turned to LSD. Regular acid trips combined with Manson's bizarre teachings led to strange behaviour. Behaviour that started to draw attention to the group. In November 1968, Tex Watson moved in with Manson and his followers at Spahn Ranch, a rundown movie set. This is where Watson got his nickname, George Spahn. In the 80-year-old nearly blind owner of the ranch immediately placed uh, Watson's Texas accent. So obviously they were taking it, they'd moved to Spahn Ranch, which is an abandoned movie set run by a man named George. And because he was like really, he was 80, pretty much mostly blind, they kind of got to stay there as a way of like agreeing to take care of him. They didn't. <laughs> Uh, an isolation, in isolation at the ranch, Manson began to preach a strange gospel. He convinced his followers that he was a godlike figure whose every word should be obeyed. Manson used the term Helter Skelter, borrowed from a Beatles song, to describe a coming race war between black and white people. According to him, all his family had to do was burrow underneath Death Valley, wait out the battle, and emerge as the only remaining white people and heir apparent to the human legacy. So basically, Charles Manson had this very weird uh, mindset that because at this point in time, there was a, racism was very, very high. It's still bad now, but it was freaking worse in the 60s. And uh, naturally, a lot of people in the black community were not having this shit anymore. So you had, obviously, Martin Luther King and all this kind of stuff. You had all this stuff going on around this period of time. And Charlie didn't, Charles Manson didn't like this. He saw that black people were a threat to white people and that before you know it there'll be no more white people on the planet because black people will take over. He didn't like this and he kind of wanted to put a stop to it. Now obviously the term Helter Skelter has been associated with Charles Manson as well as the song and the Beatles had to release a massive um, we're not involved in this stuff kind of statement years later obviously. Yeah, that's um. Now obviously, well, yeah. Now obviously, this war mm. was never going to happen. And but in Charles Manson's mind, it was taking too long for the war to break out, so he felt like he had to do it himself. Now, obviously, we mentioned the Beach Boys, and we can't go on massively long because there's a fuck ton in this. Um. But Matt, would you like to explain? Yeah, I, I can like quickly. Thing? I can like quickly go through. Also, I want to comment on the Beatles thing as well because that's it's quite interesting on the fact that the Beatles got a lot of slack. Now, this is annoying because when you do something and then someone misinterprets the thing for their own or takes it for their own and then put in a negative light. I mean, I guess examples we could give is the times when heavy metal music was becoming a thing and people associated it with satanic stuff and then blame that for the reason people were killing themselves, etc, etc. But the thing with the Beatles is the fact that Charles Manson talked about them all the time, especially the White Album, and he felt that 
he was guided by the lyrics that the Beatles had put in their songs. So the Beatles got so much shit for it because people were like, oh my God, the Beatles lyrics have literally encouraged this man to do what he's meant to do, which is not the case. They just wrote the album and he just took the lyrics and felt like, oh yes, I was guided. And then obviously Helter Skelter got released and he coined that term. So the Beatles had to be like, we don't want to have any association with this man because he's just taken the lyrics and felt guided by them. And even this is the White Album, come on, there's nothing in there that's avidly fucking, you know, like in the way of like, you'd want to start a car from listening to it. But the thing with the Beach Boys, I always mention this because I thought this was so weird. So obviously, um, Dennis Wilson, obviously most famous as the drummer from the Beach Boys, uh, you know, if you were, will in words, the California man, because he's the one that surfed and most associated with the look of the uh, the uh, surf culture and all that. But essentially, um, he had a quite close relationship, actually quite really close relationship with uh, Charles Manson, which is very weird, because essentially, when was it? It was like, oh, let me find it here, like April 6th, yeah, April 6th, 1968. Um, he, he was the one driving through Malibu, and then he noticed Patricia and then Ella Jo Bailey. He picked them up, dropped them off somewhere, and then on April 11th, he noticed them again hitchhiking and took them to his home at Sunset Boulevard. Um, uh, he told the girls, because he was involved with uh, the Marashi, which is like some spiritual thing. Um, and they told him they had someone else spiritual as well, Charles Manchin, who'd came out of jail. So that's when he knew. Um he then went to a recording session, and when he returned later that night, he basically met Charles Manton in the driveway. Um, obviously, as she mentioned, they walked in, a dozen people there. He mentioned them all that stuff. And apparently, by Manton's own account, he'd actually met Wilson beforehand on a prior occasion um, to obtain marijuana. But Wilson was kind of just fascinated by Manson and his followers, actually referring to him as the wizard, which I would not even give him that term. Um... They basically struck a friendship, and over that time, members of the Manson family, uh, women who were treated as servants, were actually housed in Wilson's house, and it cost him $100,000, equivalent to like $780K, because he had to spend money on their cars, clothes, food, penicillin for their gonorrhea. Basically, Brian Wilson was paying money for the people in Manson's family. Um, You know, and for about six months... Um, and he recalled in uh, Record Mirror Magazine, Wilson said that when I met Charlie, I found he had great musical ideas. We were writing together. Now, he's dumb in some ways, but I accept his approach and I've learned from him. Um, he told reporters that he'd been living with 17 women and asked if he'd been supporting them. Wilson replied, no, if anything, they're supporting me. I had all the rich status symbols, Rolls Royce, Ferrari, home after home. Then I woke up, gave away 50-60% of my money. Now I live in one small room with one candle, and I'm happy finding myself. Um, Wilson also kind of introduced Manson to like the music business, because Manson kind of had like music on the go, and actually wanted to write and record and release stuff, because he actually recorded stuff at Brian Wilson, another member of the uh, Beach Boys at like, Home Studios. And that's when we get on to the topic of the um, Beach Boys song that kind of Manson wrote, but didn't in a way. Um, 
uh, what was the song called? Oh yeah, it was September 1968. Wilson recorded a Manson song for the Beach Boys, originally titled "Cease to Exist," but reworked as "Never, uh, Never Learn Not to Love." He basically kind of um, wrote stuff to kind of bring the friendship of, I guess, the Wilson people back together at the time where the kind of popularity was dwindling. But it's like an interesting one on this because obviously he wrote the song um, specifically for the Beach Boys and his lyrics were meant to address personal tensions he'd witnessed between Dennis and his brothers Brian and Carl. Although he didn't anticipate in the recording, basically they scrapped that, changed the lyrics and the credits didn't go to him because obviously if the Beach Boys have a song credited to him, that's fucking horrible. Um, basically, Manson voluntarily exchanged his official writing credits for cash and a motorcycle and they basically omitted Manson's credit as a retribution for his thievery. He didn't mind the changes to music, but was increased um, incensed by the reworked lyrics, which basically caused a rift between him. Basically, the fact they reworked what he'd done really didn't... He didn't sit well with that Manson, so that's when, like, Dennis and him kind of had this, like, falling out. And... Yeah, Manson's version did get released years later, but that kind of caused the rift, sort of. And... Um... um Oh yeah, they explained why he wasn't credited. They explained that Manson relinquished publishing rights, obviously in favor for about a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff. And also around that time, basically Wilson was being used. The family like destroyed his Ferrari, destroyed his Mercedes Benz, and which had been driven to a mountain outside Span Ranch. And Dennis did the good thing. He kind of got like fearful of the situation because as things went on, he kind of realized who Manson was and was like, "This isn't good." So he kind of distanced himself from Manson and moved out the house left Manson and his followers there and subsequently took residence with Greg uh, Jacobson at a basement apartment in Santa Monica. All of Wilson's household possessions were literally stolen by the family. The members were evicted from his home three weeks before the lease was scheduled to expire. Um, when Manson subsequently sought further contact, he left a bullet with Wilson's housekeeper to be delivered with a threatening message. Apparently, kind of Wilson had become afraid of Manson. Uh, Beach Boys collaborator Van Dyke Parks later said, One day, Charles Manson brought a bullet and showed it to Dennis, who asked, What's this? And Manson replied, It's a bullet. Every time you look at it, I want you to think how nice it is your kids are still safe. Well, Dennis grabbed Manson by the head and threw him to the ground and began pummeling him. I heard about it, but I wasn't there. The point is, though, Dennis Wilson wasn't afraid of anybody. Uh, Controversially, the band manager Nick... Grillo said that Wilson became more concerned after Manson had got into a much heavy drug situation, taken a tremendous amount of acid, and Dennis wouldn't tolerate it and asked him to leave. It was difficult for Dennis because he was afraid of Charlie. Um, Wilson apparently had uh, witnessed Manson shooting a black man in half with an M16 rifle and hiding the body inside a well. Meltzer said that Wilson had been aware that the family were killing people and had been so freaked out he just didn't want to live anymore. He was afraid. And he thought he should have gone to the authorities, but he didn't, and the rest of it happened. And then, more or less, the rest of it and whatnot. I, I think... What did he... Something was said. Um, I'm pretty sure he made a comment on when Thingy died. When Brian... Uh, sorry, when Dennis Wilson died. I'm thinking sure Charles Manson made a comment. Ooh, I wonder if I can find it. Uh, if I can just search Charles 
might be down here. Here we go. How oh, well he made a comment about something about his shadow. Something about a shadow had killed him. Or something like that. Or like his shadow was looming over him when he died. I don't know if I can find it. Um I don't know. But there was a he made a he made a bad comment about him after his death, which is absolutely horrible. Oh, here it is. Upon Wilson's death, Manson is quoted as saying, Dennis Wilson was killed by my shadow because he took my music and changed the words from my soul. Manson never substantiated uh, um, these claims. But yes, that's it in like a shorter form. There's maybe more to it. But, um, you know, Wilson acknowledged the interest in his relationship with Manson and said, um, I know why he did what he did. Sub someday I'll tell the world, I'll write a book and explain why he did it. But it's good that he got away. They had a close friendship. They did that song, which you can listen to, the, Be uh, the Beach Boys version, sorry. And yeah, his original hear, version. Yeah, you don't hear Charlie in it. No, but he kind of got disgruntled at the fact they changed the lyrics and everything. So they basically gave him a chance where he could have had some success in the music industry because yeah. it's the Beach Boys for goodness sake. Bear in mind, and then Charles Manson. If you want to listen to Charles Manson's music, like he's dead. yeah, he's dead now. You're not. He's not going to make anything from it. You can listen to it. It is online. You can. There's a whole. There's a load of songs you can listen to it. Yeah, I, I mean, I particularly haven't, but. Obviously, I, I have. Have you actually listened to the "Never Learn Not to Love" the Beach Boys song, which was his? I mean, I was—I was, I mean, I've listened to him when I was doing like research and stuff, like little bits. He yeah could have—he could have gone somewhere with it. I'm not gonna lie. If he wasn't such a twat, he could have done something with it. It could have—it could if he would have just done what most musicians do when they get rejected, which is work on themselves, make it better, and then try again. Could have worked. Yeah, I'm pretty worked. sure they didn't release his stuff until very, very late on that they actually oh, yeah, yeah. put his stuff in in that sort of like um, in the back catalogue somewhere and then they thought, alright, it's years after we can now release his stuff but um, it's good that they reworked the lyrics and everything and he doesn't get credits on it because he wanted money because it's been horrible as we've known from carving people in the past yeah. that if you have credits for someone if you've sampled someone who's turned out to be an, a very bad person you don't really want that on your cards for something but Every, that's the shortest any, short any, summarized any band that has Ian Watkins on it. yeah but that's the sort of like shortish form there's more to it but i love i love mentioning it to folk because people like someone of such a high profile dennis wilson drum of the beach boys associated with someone else who's a very fucked individual yeah. and gladly dennis although he kind of knew what was going on and to be honest it's right they saw he'd be a bit scared of Charles Manson, saw all the stuff that was happening and disassociated himself with it because he basically gave them family money and all this stuff and they turned on him and destroyed his possessions and just screwed him over and he's like, I can't do this and got out of it. So, so yeah, that, yeah it's, it's a very weird thing that that's part of it. Like, I remember when I first researched Charles Manson and I was reading about it and then as soon as the Beach Boys came in, I was like, what the fuck? It's it's not someone you associate. And obviously... It's not something Dennis you'd expect because everyone knows Charles Manson for the main thing and this mad shit that he does, but... Yeah, and obviously Dennis yeah. dies. He's one of the Beach Boys members that died, or I think the one that died the youngest. Yeah. But the fact is you never, associ you never associate something of that profile 
with that thing. And it's one of those good cases where, like, right. it didn't take a turn for the worst. Because it definitely could have if Dennis had still kept in contact. Well, he probably he might have got murdered himself. Probably. He died at the age of 39. But, yeah. So, um, next we're going to go into the life of... So, Leslie uh, Louise Van Houten. Which another member of the family. Was born on the 23rd of August, 1949, in Los Angeles, California. Uh, they had, she had a very typical middle class child childhood, very normal up, upbringing. Literally everything was normal. Dad was a automotive auctioneer, and her mum was a school teacher. When she graduated high school in 1967, she moved in with her father because her parents got divorced and began attending a business college. And she wanted to become a legal secretary. And she began gravitating towards spiritualism and planned to live in a spiritualism community. Everyone goes through this phase in uni. But normally it's a phase. It was not a phase for Leslie. In summer of 1968, Leslie was visiting friends in San Francisco when she met Catherine Cher, Bobby Busholi, and his wife Gail. She began travelling with them and in September they took her to meet Charles Manson at Spahn's Movie Ranch. She moved to the ranch three weeks later and she never left. She rang her mum to say she was dropping out and would not be making contact ever again. Manson decided when they would eat, sleep, and have sex, and with whom they would have sex with. She also controlled the taking of LSD, giving followers larger doses than he, than he himself took. According to Manson, when you take LSD enough times, you reach a state of nothing, of, of no thought. I feel like that's a bit for most drugs as well. According to Van Houten, she became saturated in acid and would not grasp the existence of those living in a non-psychedelic reality yet yeah, that's what a junkie is that's that's that, that's not good uh next word was next member is seth is oh, sorry steve dennis grogan he was born on the 13th of july 1951 uh grogan was troubled and difficult when he was growing up so this is one where his childhood wasn't great uh, when his frustrated parents lost hope, they decided to drop him off at Spahn Ranch and he was taken in by ranch hands and began to do odd jobs around the ranch. Now, this is when it wasn't run by Manson. And it was just like when he was doing odd jobs around there. But obviously, during the days when the family hung around uh, Spahn Ranch, he kind of fell in to that kind of environment which was going to happen if he's already living there next is Linda Kasabian she was born in Brin in Brindwood, Maine on the 23rd of June 1949 uh, she again like she, she had she, her family struggled financially and her parents didn't get along uh, her father abandoned them when Linda was still a child but her parents did remarry later on she was described as intelligent and a good student, but she did drop out of high school and ran away from home at the age of 16 due to increasing problems with her stepfather. And she just headed to... She just headed looking for something better. She just headed off. But when she was 16, she did get married uh, to a man named Robert Peasley and divorced not too long later. She moved to Miami and tried to connect, reconnect with her father but then she, they drifted apart. She then traveled to Boston, remarried, uh, re got married to a man named Robert Kasabian and gave birth to a daughter in 1968. When Linda's second marriage 
fell apart and her baby daughter Tanya she her and her baby daughter Tanya returned to New Hampshire to live with her mother. Uh, later her hus- her ex-husband Robert Savian asked her if he could meet her in La- meet him in Los Angeles. He wanted her to join him and his friend Charles Manson on a sailing trip to South America. She was hoping to fix their relationship back up again and she went to go live with Robert. By the time she was pregnant with her second child, Linda was feeling rejected. Robert had left her behind on the South American trip he had promised to bring her on. And her friend Catherine Gypsy Cher described a very nice ranch where a group of hippies were living in paradise to escape social turmoil. And she was loving the idea of that and went to the ranch and fell in love with Charles Manson. Why is everyone falling in love with Charles Manson? Every everyone's doing it. Why? I mean, he's ugly. He does not look good. No, not at all. Like, he really does not look good. Next, we have got Susan Atkins. So a lot of people might recognize some of these names because a few of them, especially the women, are quite well known, mostly for how they acted during the trial, which we will get into because how they acted was fucking weird. Uh, Susan Atkins was born on the 7th of May 1948. Uh, she was of English, Irish, Scottish and German descent. So basically what's that? what I'm telling you there is that she was one of those annoying bitches that used to go, so I'm like 5% Scottish and I'm like 1% Irish. So technically I'm Irish. It's like, no bitch, no. That's not, not no. Yeah, she's one, she's one, she's one, it's like, I, I, I'm Scottish. It's like, are you? It's like, yeah, like my great 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 grandmother is from Scotland, and I'm just there like, no, that doesn't make you Scottish. It makes no. your great 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 grandmother fucking Scottish bitch. That's what that means. Yeah. Don't count. Like, don't claim. Don't claim. It's, it's like, the Americans do that with Irish heritage. It's like my ancestors are from France. You don't see me walking around going, "I'm French." Bonjour, bitch. Like, no. Like, no. It means my ancestors were French. Yeah, I, I don't I'm just do that. I hate that. Yeah, like, no, no, that's what that is. Like, bitch, you were born in California. You're from California. Shut the fuck up. She... Yeah, don't. Yeah, fuck that. She definitely would go on about England all the time. About she. Oh, my God. She, she, bet she was so annoying. So, apparently, her parents were alcoholics. Eh, you know, they got Scottish and Irish blood in them, so it's a bit... Yeah. We're gonna go technical. You can't even deny that. I know you're Scottish, but you even you can't deny that. Can't deny what? She's got her parents were alcoholics. Like they've got Irish and Scottish blood in them. Yes, alky yeah. bastards. Yes. They've also got Fucking... English in there, so they might have been drinking some Stella and cunts. Yes. Yeah, um, cunts. Yes, definitely. If you're Scottish. Someone in your family might have had an alky problem. Always drinking since the age of 12. Yeah. Um, so, her family life was pretty much shit. Um, like, yeah, a bunch of alcoholics in the family. Her mum actually died of cancer. And after that, she was just horrifically abused. And she did claim that she was sexually abused by a, fe- by a male relative. Until she was 13 years old, They lived. At- her and her family lived in a middle-class home in California and she was described as quiet and self-conscious and just yeah she didn't really talk much but then again if you're going through a lot of shit at home you're probably not going to she eventually moved uh, to Los Banos California um, 
and with um, her with her sister and younger brothers and they just kind of wanted to get away from the whole that whole life now when she was in high school she ended up actually meeting two convicts uh which is a weird thing to say and she ended up helping out with quite a few robberies and she actually did spend a few months in prison at some point but then after when she got out of prison she would make ends meet by performing as a stripper basically in 1967 she met manson when he played guitar at the house where she was living in with several of his friends and she fell in love with manson and like the rest of them and yeah then she went off and decided to go live with manson be in love with him be in a relationship with him he actually changed her name from Susan Atkins to Sadie May Glut to Sadie May Glutz to kill her ego because he felt like her ego was too big. And yeah, and she would actually be a massive part in what later goes on, and I will explain why later because I'm not going to tell you now. But uh, she um, there's a reason why a lot of people tend to remember her name <laughs> with everything that goes down. So there isn't too much on Bobby Buscioli either. Um, he just had like working class parents and all this kind of stuff. There wasn't really much on him at all. He was kind of just... The thing is with Bobby, he was kind of just there. He was kind of like the man that, got, that had to do everything for Charlie. I think that's the best way of putting him. Uh, back, that's the best way... Yeah, that's the best way of putting him. He had like a working class background. There isn't really much on him like at all. Uh, he had a bit of a shit childhood from what I can find. He, when he was 15, he was sent to a boys' camp for 10 months uh, for running away from home and for doing a bunch of pranks, apparently. He then moved away to he then moved to Los Angeles after growing up in, in Santa Barbara. And he drifted between there and San Francisco. And obviously, in the late 60s, is when he met Charles Manson and became associated with him and the Manson family. Now, back at Spahn Ranch, um, Patricia said that Charlie had his front street girls, pretty girls who were used to use to lure men into the family, and his back street girls who were useful for their work and loyalty to him. Patricia said that she was a back street girl. Back streets, all right, sorry. And she was the designated mother. She cooked, she did the laundry, she did the ironing, she took care of the children, and all that kind of stuff so she was kind of like the mum and that did absolutely everything but bear in mind everything that happened on the ranch was all in control of charlie he controlled what everyone did what all their roles were and everyone had to do what they were told like no one was to disobey him because they saw him as a god they saw him as god so they just did everything that he said because they thought that if we follow what he says everything in life will be okay and we will be safe and we will get everything that we want out of life including with this alleged war that he thought was going to happen. So women were paired up a lot of the time in a buddy system that reflected those that basically... It, they were put in a buddy system for like pimps and stuff, according to a lot of the women. Uh, Charlie would put them into a buddy system uh, for the pimps and the buddy, base, the buddy system was basically a way to break in new girls into the whole life of sex work apparently because this was bear in mind their way to make money 
because they're all living on this ranch they don't have any money so a lot of the girls would end up resorting to sex work to kind of help fund this whole cult that charles manson had set up so sorry i'm just trying to go through a lot of this stuff so we're going to fast forward to 1969 so about a year after this whole thing with dennis wilson and all this kind of stuff in 1969, just a few weeks before the infamous Tate LeBlanc murders, Manson ordered his follower Bobby to kill his friend Gary Hinman, an act which would propel the family past the point of no return and into the darkest depths of humanity. Indeed, it would be the number 34. It would be the number of 34-year-old musician uh, Gary Hinman that escalated the Manson family from borderline creepy group of free-loving young people to a crazed collection of mindless mass murders. Gary Hinman was born on the 30, uh, in 1934 on Christmas Eve in Colorado. Uh, he studied at the University of California, Los Angeles, graduating with a degree in chemistry and continuing his, ed his education by getting a PhD. So fairly, like, normal. Apparently, according to a lot of his friends, he, you know, didn't want to kill him. Uh, so he was a very kind-hearted person. He was very generous and all this kind of stuff. He was a very nice and lovely guy. He was a very talented musician who worked at a music shop and taught the bagpipes, drums, piano, and trombone, which is a very interesting combo. During the summer of 1969, Himmon became involved in uh, Buddhism and became planning a whole trip to Japan to fulfill a new faith. Obviously, this was never going to happen. This actually never happened for him. In the summer of 1966, Himmon was planning uh, his trip to Japan and letting... Every, uh, sorry. Wait, I'm trying to figure out where I'm up to. I'm sorry, my writing is all very small. So yeah, in 1966, Himmon actually befriended members of the Manson family, family including Bobby. And they all kind of lived in and out of his house quite a fair bit. Manson believed that Gary was sitting on a lot of inherited money. Some of it being $20,000 worth. And he believed that Gary had invested the money in his house and cars, and basically he wanted that money. He was sick of Gary and he wanted the money. That's all he wanted. But he got Bobby to do the dirty work. On the 25th of July, 1969, Manson ordered Bobby to go over to his house with the intention of scaring him out of the $20,000. Bobby was joined by Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner, who were rumoured to have slept with Gary in the past. You know, bring the girls over who he might have slept with to kind of basically try and get his good side before trying to get the money. When asking for the money, Hinman admitted that he didn't have any. In fact, he didn't even own his own his own house and cars, as it was speculated. Getting more frustrated, Bobby roughed him up by thinking that he was lying when it seemed unlikely that he was. Bobby ended up calling for backup. The next day, Charles Manson arrived at the house along with Bruce Davis. After Bobby told Manson that there was no money, Manson got out a samurai sword and sliced Gary's ear and cheek. At that point, Bobby claimed that horror had set in for him and that he confronted Manson, disgusted at the leader's like lust for blood. He said he asked Manson why he'd hurt him this way, and Manson said, to show you how to be a man. Unbothered, Manson and Davis took 
took off in one of Hinman's cars, leaving a panicking Bobby alone with an injured Gary and Susan and Mary. Now, obviously the whole intention was to scare Gary into giving them money. It wasn't the, the, the intention wasn't necessarily to actually kill him. So when Charles Manson had sliced Gary and left the house, just leaving Bobby and the girls there, they all went into a massive panic and did the best that they could to try and clean Gary up. They tried using dental floss to stitch up his wounds. I can imagine that being excruciatingly painful. Uh, Hinman seemed dazed and kept insisting that he didn't believe in violence and simply wanted everyone to leave his home. Despite the fact that Hinman were, uh, Hinman's wounds was under control, Bobby continued to become agitated, believing that there was no way out of this. Bobby said, I knew if I took him to the emergency room, I'd end up going to prison. Gary would tell on me for sure, and he would tell on Charlie and everyone else. This is when I realised there was no way out. After getting frustrated over what to do next and speaking to Manson several times, Bobby decided that the only thing to do was to kill Gary. The words political piggy was written in Gary's blood across his wall. Bobby also drew a paw print on the wall in his blood in an attempt to convince the police that the Black Panthers had been involved and the and they had instigated the impending race war Manson had preached. So basically in Bobby's mind, he wanted to make it seem like a group of black people had broken in and killed Gary, a white man, to try and get this race war, like, picked up quicker so Charlie could fulfill what he wanted to do. According to the San Diego Union Tri uh, Tribune, which reported on the murders originally, Hinman was tortured for several days before being stabbed to death. So no one actually properly knows what happened. You got two accounts. You got one that was in the papers, but then you've also got the which might have been factual. We've also got the story that Bobby and Charles Manson said, which is that it was an accident and it was never meant to happen. So no one actually really knows. But after this, this is when everything started to go downhill and escalate. Now I don't know if you actually know about the main murders about with with these guys. What Tate? Yes, that yeah. I I, I kind of know teeny bits, but not the main thing. So the Tate murder. So for so the next the main one of the main murders in this entire thing was the Tate murders. For this, Patricia was selected for the murders by Charlie for her loyalty. Manson knew how dependent she was on him. And at that point in time, she had had a few recent attempts to leave him. And he needed to remind her that she belonged to him. So he wanted her to commit this murder as a reminder that you're mine. I tell you what to do. Patricia said, Manson came into a trailer where I was taking care of the children and told me to come out. When I came in front of the ranch, there was a car and Tex was there and Susan Atkins and Linda Kasabian. Charlie told me to go with Tex and do whatever he said. Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian and Pat and, and Patricia Krimwinkle uh, climbed into a four-door Ford owned by one of the ranch hands. Watson and Kasabian were in the front seat, Atkins and Krimwinkle were in the back. Film actress Sharon Tate and her husband, Polish film uh, director Roman Polans Polanski, were currently renting uh, 150 Cielo Drive in the summer of 1969. 
Sharon was pregnant and her husband was overseas on this day for a film project, but because she was on her own and heavily pregnant, she had two house guests who were Abigail Folger, Abigail's boyfriend, Warwick Frakowski. And that evening, uh, Sharon's ex-boyfriend, hairstylist Jay Sebring, was also there. Uh, 18-year-old high school graduate Stephen Parent was also on the property that night, visiting the caretaker, William uh, Gretzworth. Now, all of the people in the house, uh, being Abigail, uh, Woolrich, and Jay, and obviously Sharon, were all savagely murdered that night. Patricia Krenwinkel stabbed Abigail Folger, chasing her across the back lawn, where Folger was eventually killed by Tex Watson. Watson shot Stephen Parent to death before he, Atkins, and Krenwinkel broke into the main house, leaving Kasabian to stay at the gate as a getaway and lookout. Jay Sebring, Abigail, Warwick, and Sharon made, were made together in the living room, and Tate and Sebring were linked by rope tied around their necks. Sebring was shot and stabbed to death. Uh, Frykowski and Folger managed to free themselves and, and run out of the house, but both were chased down and killed by Pat and Watson. Pat even recalls when she was killing Abigail, she said that she had already died, well, she was already dead and she was still being stabbed. Finally, Susan Atkins and Tex stabbed Sharon Tate as they left the house. Susan used Sharon's blood to write the word pig on the front door. Now, a lot of people may be confused on why this murder was carried out. There is a few... There's, there's two things with this. So, Manson has said that he didn't know Sharon Tate was living there. Because that house was actually owned by the record producer that turned him away from getting a record deal. And he says that he thought he didn't know that he had moved out of that house and that he had actually sent his family to go and kill him and not Sharon Tate however there has been accounts that say that a few days prior to the murders Charles Manson was spotted outside the gates of the house and even interacted with Sharon Tate so he asked he even turned up to the house asking for the record producer and when Sharon Tate oh I'm so sorry he doesn't live here anymore we actually live here now he might have been very much aware that Sharon Tate was living there I'm not the record producer but no one fully knows I think he knew but I think he just didn't care I think he just wanted the memory of that house and who lived in it to be gone and this was his weird sick twisted way of doing it now, obviously, that's not the only murders that were committed with Charles Manson's orders. On the 9th of August, 1969, Len Leno and Rosemary LeBlanca had been vacationing for the day at Lake Isabella and returned home the, the, the following night. So, and returned home the night following the Tate murders. They were last seen alive when they stopped on their way to buy fuel. Rosemary had bought a newspaper, his front, its front page detailing the murders, or the, the Tate murders, at Roman Polanski's Beverly Hills house. The attendant testified later that Rosemary uh, had been very concerned and anxious when she read about the murders and briefly discussed this with the person behind the counter. 
The following night, Manson took Watson, Atkins, Cranwinkle and Kasabian, as well as Leslie Van Houten and Stephen uh, Grogan in search of more people to murder. Manson selected the Los Angeles home of grocery store executive Leno B uh, LaBianca and his wife Rosemary. After Manson and Watson tied the couple up and robbed them, and robbed them, Manson left with Susan Atkins, Kasabian and Grogan. Watson, Van Houten and Krenwinkel remained and acted on orders from Manson by stabbing the couple to death, again leaving the words pig written in blood on the walls. The following night, on the 10th of August 1969, Rosemary's 15-year-old son Frank Struthers became concerned when neither, of his, when neither of his mother or stepfather answered the door. After contacting his older sister Suzanne Struthers and her boyfriend, the three of them, upon arriving to the home, became further worried by the fact that Leno's boat was parked and entered the house. Inside the kitchen, they saw the words Helter Skelter written in what appeared to be blood on the front of the refrigerator. In the living room, they found Leno bound and gagged and stabbed to death, and Rosemary was found also stabbed to death in the master bedroom. The crimes created a panic in Los Angeles, especially given an, uh, given how horrific they were. It was spelt wrong as well. Yeah. It was spelt he H E A L Helter Skelter. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was spelled wrong. I believe Piggies isn't. It's not. Well, it's not a direct reference, but there, uh, there is a song. Named Piggies on the White Album. Yeah. So yeah. On the 16th of August, Spahn Ranch was raided by multiple law enforcement agencies related to matters dealing with auto theft. So they weren't actually on, as a suspect for any of the murders. Everyone at the ranch was arrested and thrown into custody, but two days later, but two days later they were freed when the judge determined their arrest warrants were misdated. A few days after his release, Charlie was arrested on suspicion of marijuana possession and held for several days. He was irate upon his return and believed that Spahn Ranch hand Shorty Seer had turned him in. In retaliation, he ordered several of his followers to kill Shear. Days later, the family fled back to Barker Ranch in Death Valley, leaving Spahn Ranch. At the end of September, the Manson family uh, committed an act of arson on a piece of earth moving equipment, blocking their access to Death Valley National Park. They torched the truck, but law enforcement was soon hot on their heels. At 4am on Friday the 10th of October, law enforcement uh, converged around Barker Ranch. They included the, they included the California Highway Patrol, the County Sheriff's Office and the National Park Service. Before dawn, the officers snuck onto the property. In the house, officers found six women, Squeaky, Katie, Sadie, Gypsy, Leslie, and Little Patty. Police continued to in nearby Myers Ranch and arrested four more Manson family women and detained two of the children. Others were arrested over a three-day period. Bobby's pregnant girlfriend was among those arrested and, and, and then immediately transported back to the Los Angeles area to speak with investigators for Gary Hinman's murder. Kitty told detectives that she believed two or three women were with Bobby when he stabbed Gary. She named Susan Atkins. When the when the investigators drove back to talk to Sadie, she had quote she had quite the story to tell them. Basically, Bobby's girlfriend had given two shits and she just went, Let me just tell you pretty much fucking everything. Now one, of the now, Kate now one of the members, Katie, on the 23rd of October actually flew to Alabama where she was interviewed eventually by local police about the murders. 
She named Manson, Glenn, uh, Clem, Bruce, and maybe Tex as the perpetrators. She admitted that um, the women helped cover up Shea's murder, but didn't volunteer anything about her activities on the 9th and 10th of August, so she kept herself a bit hush about the big ones. Now, the thing is, Susan Atkins couldn't fucking wait to tell everyone what had been going on. She told... she was in, When she was held in custody, she told multiple inmates about what had happened in in Gary Hinman's murder, the Tate murders, and the LeBlanca murders. Now, I don't think a lot of people are aware of this, but when you start talking in prison, even if it's down to, official, to an official officer, they still know what you're saying, bitch. Like, they will find out. Like, they will definitely find out. On the 1st of December, LAPD Chief Davis announced that a news conference that the Tate and LaBianca murders had been solved. Arrest warrants were issued for those not yet in, not yet in custody. Patricia was in Alabama at the time and she was dating a young man and she was basically trying to hide. Uh, she was riding in a car with the man that she was now dating but she was then pulled over and arrested for the murders. She basically tried to deny that she had any involvement in any of the murders, but her fingerprints pretty much matched everything at the crime scene because they weren't exactly careful in covering their tracks. They didn't cover them in the slightest. There was so much, there was so much evidence and fingerprints. Uh, on so all the fam- all the sorry. On the 8th of December, the grand jury indicted Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Charles Watson, Leslie Van Houten, and Susan Atkins for the murders of, Tate, of the Tate and LaBianca victims. So all of them at this point have now been arrested. Now the trial's weird. The trial is the main thing. This whole thing has probably been felt a bit messy and all over the place, but the, the whole thing is just messy and all over the place. I hope I've explained a fair, a fair, a fair bit of it okay. But we're on to the trials now. The trials are weird. Because they're fucking weird. On the 9th of June 1970, Manson, Susan, Patricia and Leslie were called before the court for a pre-trial hearing. Charles Manson dramatically turned his chair away from the judge, claiming that since the court didn't respect him, he had no respect for the court. The following day, Susan, Patricia and Leslie stood and turned their backs to the judge just like Charles Manson did, like little puppets. The trial established its predicament quite early. They didn't realise that the women would do exactly what Charlie told them to do. So they knew this was going to be a big pain in the arse. On the 24th of July 1970, Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten began trial in Los Angeles Superior Court. Manson began the first day of trial with an act of self-mutilation. Uh, do you know what he did? No. So when he walked into the courtroom in the first morning, people were kind of shocked because the night before he'd gotten hold of a sharp object and carved a bloody X into his forehead. Oh. He said, 
I'd have X'd myself from your world. Your courtroom is man's game. Love is my judge. Fuck off. Well then. Fuck off, you stupid cunt. The following day, Patricia, Leslie, and, and Sadie also carved X's into their foreheads using a heated bobby pin. Charlie expected that they would take the fall and he would apparently be set free. No. No. That was never going to happen. On the 25th of January, Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were convicted of first-degree murder. Now, um, there's a actually you can find this all online. A lot the, there is a lot of footage from the trials. Um, there's a lot of footage of the girls walking down to the courtroom and to the cells, um, and they're just creepily singing, holding hands. Like, it's very cult-looking. Like, if you wanted to say the stereotypes of a cult, that footage is basically it. It's really fucking creepy. When they... When they were going to go and get their sentences on the 21st... On the 29th of March... Um... When they entered the room... Uh, everyone looked at them in shock because Charlie, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie had all shaved their heads to oh. match each other, to, to all match. As they stood, the jury stated that they'd all been sentenced to death. Patricia said, You have just judged yourselves. Susan said, Better lock your doors and watch your own kids. Leslie said, your whole system is a game. You blind, stupid people. Your children will turn against you. Now, uh, spoiler alert. They, they're, they're still alive. Ah. <laughs> um, Charlie isn't. But they, the rest of them are. So... For a long time, the women were still under Manson's control, and it took years for each of them to break away and have a sense of normality. It took a long time. A lot of psychologists and psychiatrists and counsellors were involved in their time in prison. Well, still are involved, because they're still all in prison. Because, so in, 19, in 1972, the California Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. So they got, they they no longer have death sentences, and he got moved to life in prison instead. In October 1975, Patricia, Susan, and Leslie were moved from the Special Security Wing of Florida, of Florida, of, of Frontera, where they were serving their death sentence. They were moved to a different high security prison. After four years of being in prison, Patricia had started to question Manson's authority. It took her four years to basically snap out of what the fuck was going on in her head when it came to him. When it came to 1976, they all began to review their files and they tried to appeal their convictions. 1977, Patricia got into a relationship with a female inmate. She continued to drink and abuse drugs within the prison system. 
In August of that year, she got drunk and was sick for several days. After this, she got clean and her girlfriend was paroled in the, in the early 80s. Uh, in, in the mid-80s, Patricia was treated for her hormone imbalance troubles and prescribed medica medication for an abundance of testosterone. Um, <laughs> Kenny, a nickname from her fellow inmates, received a correspondence from a woman named Judy Hansen, a researcher working for Sharon Tate's mother, um, and became like a fairly good friend for them, which I find fucking weird. But you murdered her your her mate's daughter, and you and it's all a bit fucked up. I'm not gonna lie. This woman got in touch with Patricia, who is now going by Kenny, and wanted to write about her life story, despite being friends with Sharon Tate's mum. Yeah. So currently, Patricia is the longest serving female inmate in the California criminal justice system. She is rarely sat for interviews, but spoken has spoken on some occasions. At times, she has taken full responsibility for her role in the murders, and other times, she says that she doesn't. So she switches a lot, so she can't be trusted at, at all. Uh, Leslie Van Houten is now 71 years old and is still in prison and was recently denied parole. She got she got married in 1982 to a man named William, but got divorced the same year. Why are you all mar Why are people marrying inmates like this? Oh God! Like what? Why? Susan Atkins did actually die at the age of 61 in prison in the year 2009 from natural causes. She did get married though during her time in prison to a man named James Whitehouse from 1987 to 2009 when she died. So she was married for a while actually she's been married twice in prison so she was married from 1987 to 2009 but she was also first married to a man named donald leisure from 1981 to 1982 i'm just gonna point something out here these bitches are all getting married when they just committed some horrific murders in prison i'm single and no one no one's no one wants to take me out or do anything like i'm not gonna lie but I feel a bit insulted. Like, I can't hold down... Like, I couldn't hold down my past relationship. These bitches are getting married in prison after committing murders. What the fuck? I can't get a relationship. And the people like, are still... It feels like on what... It feels... When I, whenever, whenever I read shit like this, right? And it's these people... These horrific people getting married in prison. It's like watching Jeremy Kyle again. And you're like, what the fuck? How the fuck... How are you lot all in relationships and I'm, I can't, I can't. Yeah, we're not like up in our ego or anything like that or like, you know, like begging and this sort of thing. But it's just, it's that sense of like you anyone. say. We have, we've not murdered anyone. People, have, people do fucked things, but they still manage to find someone to love them. I mean, yeah, people who, it's, it's just, it's harder for people, it seems, who haven't committed horrific crimes to get anyone. I mean... Why would you date... A lot of people now are quite picky and judgy on if, what someone's done. Yeah. A lot of people can be, but it just seems there's some people out there that can just look past the fact that someone has murdered someone and then still love them. I mean, I would never. I could never. Yeah, no, I, I definitely I couldn't. Oh my god, shut up. Uh, so yeah, uh, Charles Tex Watson... 
he did get he got another he got a life sentence just like the women all the guy everyone got a life sentence from the from the manson family he also got married in 1979 to a woman named christian but the two of them got divorced in 2003 but they had a fairly long marriage and he is currently still in prison and he is 75 years old motherfuckers all getting married and shit why Linda Kasabian, even though being involved with the murders, was not sentenced due to being a witness and naming the family members. In September 2009, shut up! In September 2009, she gave an interview about the crimes and said, for the past 12 years, she has been on a path of healing and rehabilitation. She is now 72 years old and is not in prison. Charles Manson lived out the rest of his life in prison and he died on the 19th of November 2017 in Bakersfield, California from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer in hospital. He was 83 years old. Squeaky from, however, little squeaky with the weird noise that she makes when she's getting banged. Fucking weird lady. Uh, she's the only Manson family member to be granted parole. She was released in 2009, is currently 72 years old, but apparently still supports Manson and is apparently still in love with him. Oh dear. She wasn't arrested in involvement with the Manson murders, but due to attempting to assassinate, but but she was then arrested because she, later on because she was attempting to assassinate President Gerald Ford. Fucking hell, Squeaky. And that is Charles Manson and the Manson family, guys. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm just going to end... I just want to end off. I want to... I was just reading it. I'm going to touch a bit more on the Hell of Skelter Beatles thing because I didn't mention it earlier, which I probably should. Um, which I'm probably going to listen to the White Album uh, pretty much after this. I mean, you could delve into it more, but I was just reading it and his, like... His like weird scenario that he created is even more interesting because reading it here on his weird scenario, which we touched upon, which I just kind of want to skim over as I was reading it because I didn't realize what it was actually about. It's kind of fucked. Um, you know, it's weird that the term "helter skelter" has been associated with racial war because the song wasn't intended that. If anyone knows the actual Beatles song, Paul McCartney wrote Helter Skelter as a response to the time of Pete Townsend from The Who saying that he'd written the heaviest song ever. And Paul McCartney said, basically, bitch, I can write a heavier song than you. And obviously, it may or may not be the song that spawned the whole heavy metal genre, depending on how you feel about that. But the fact that um, uh, the, the scenario had Manson as the war's ultimate benefactory and its musical course, he and the family would create an album with songs whose messages would be this subtle, would be as subtle as those he had heard in the songs of the Beatles. And the fact that kind of how his story thing goes of the whole, like, um, black men would thus be deprived of white uh, of the white woman whom the political charges of the 96 days had made sexually available to them and would lash out in violent crimes against white people. According to Watkins and Tex Watson, frightened white people would retaliate with a murderous rampage and militant black people would exploit it to provoke a war of near extermination between races, white people and non-racist white people over the treatment of black people. Then the militant black people would arise to finish off the few white people who survived and kill off all non-black peoples. Uh, that it, Watkins goes on to say that in the Holocaust, the members of the enlarged family would have little to fear. They would wait out the war in a secret city that was underneath Death Valley, which they would reach through a hole in the ground. 
and they would be the only remaining whites upon the race war's conclusion as they would emerge from underground to rule the blacks who, as the vision went, would be incapable of running the world. At that point, Watkins ends, says, Manson would scratch the black man's fuzzy head and kick him to the uh, in the butt and tell him to go, very uh, racial uh, term, basically telling, calling him the yeah. you know, offensive word against that sort of race and telling him to do the uh, stuff the uh, people in the slave trade made them do, which is absolutely horrible. And it's such a weird fucked sort of like scenario. And to take that from kind of what the White Album was um, and that the song was concerned with the war um, and the fact is Manson listened to the album pretty much a couple when they're months or so after its release and they they prepared this stuff months before they committed the murders and they worked on songs that they hoped for an album which would set off everything and then they'd escape etc etc and that you can look at it on the Wikipedia article but like each song has like certain parts in it which lyrical interpretations um Manson took from the songs basically like there's some lyrics in the songs which they're believed to what Manson interpreted or he said that he interpreted which is very weird but the the part as well as I kind of wanted to touch upon was kind of what the Beatles said and the kind of like stuff after that because obviously if you're as high as that and you have some serial kill associated to you you're going to be like oh shit you know what I mean oh fuck we don't want this um Essentially, where is it here? Ooh, um, um, oh, yeah. In his final interview he gave before his murder in uh, December 1980, obviously, John Lennon, John Lennon dismissed Manson as just an extreme version of the type of listener who read false messages in the Beatles' lyrics, such as those behind the Paul is Dead rumor. Lennon also said all that Manson stuff was built around George's song about pigs, piggies, and this one. Paul's song about an English fairground it has nothing to do with anything, at least of all to do with me. Because there was a Paul McCartney obviously written song. And reflecting on Helter Skelter in a 1997 authorised biography, McCartney said, Unfortunately, it inspired people to do evil deeds, and that the song has acquired all sorts of ominous overtones because Manson picked it up as an anthem. Um... Mm, it's, it's very weird that the whole thing about how the how the Beatles have been tagged with that because he used that, and I believe as well, if I'm correct, um, they tried to get the testimony. Um, I'm pretty sure they tried to get what should we call it, John Lennon, to speak upon. The to speak upon his um, testimony, it's somewhere here. I can't remember where it was. Uh... Oh, come on! Maybe it's on the other page. There's two pages here. The the thing on the song. Um. I don't know if I can find it here, but there was definitely something that said um, that they tried to... Apparently they tried to actually contact the Beatles to get them to come over 
and kind of like join them within the whole thing, which I thought was very fucking weird. Mm. Um, uh, the Beatles would definitely have not done that. Not that uh, the Beatles didn't have their fair share of controversies with some of the members, but they definitely wouldn't associated themselves with that. It's it's on the it's definitely on the maybe the Helter Skelter scenario page. But yeah, there was some point in where they tried to get John Lennon to have something in the like, in the testimony sort of thing, but obviously it was like, well, you know, he didn't write the song, so he's got no relation to that. It's a soul Paul McCartney thing, but the you know, read into it more. And if you, it's a trip to in itself to listen to the White Album afterwards, and knowing that the lyrical interpretations Manson took from that and what he's done, it's a weird sort of like trip to listen to this and if it, listen to it it's a great album but then also listen to the lyrics and think wow some person heard this and took this this sort of messed up fucked way extremely fucking weird um yeah I think there was those lyrical references in pretty much a lot of the songs but A Charles Manson was a fucked man and if it actually gone the way he'd wanted to, like, he'd actually released the album and done the whole, like, race war thing. Would have been completely fucked up. Thank the fucking hell the race war thing did not happen. Yeah. Um, Because that's fucked. But I just thought I'd mention it because when I was just reading it there about what his whole conspiracy theory was, it was like, to get that from the fucking, you know, the song Helter Skelter or have that perceived perception is like, fucking hell. Jesus Christ. Oh dear. But it's just a song about a fairground ride, Helter Skelter, that Paul McCartney wrote, just so that he could say he wrote the heaviest song ever in reaction to Pete Townsend from The Who saying he wrote the heaviest song ever. Nothing bad about it at all, so don't shit on the fucking exactly. the, the Beatles for that. And if, you, and if you even want to delve more into that song, uh, Motley Crue did a cover of it. So. Oh yeah, it's, it's here as well. It's a fucking, Not great, they... it's a fucking great cover. But, is um, it how how close to the original does it sound, or how have they made it their? Is it their it, style? It's still very much there. It's it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Ah, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit well. of both. But it's like, yeah, it's still very motley. But it's it's a bit of both. Um, mm. But yeah, give it give that a listen. But yeah, uh, that is Charles Manson and the Manson family, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a bit longer, uh, but it's. It could have been even longer, believe me. I had to shorten that shit. Oh, yeah, there's way more. There's way more, but I, I had to really shorten that. Otherwise, we would have been here for like three hours, and I've got to go to the gym, so we don't have Yeah, to and it's one of those cases where, like, things connect to other things, which connect to other things, which you could mention. Exactly. I mean, I know I delved off at some of the music things, but I guess it relates. But obviously, you know, we touched on some of those things, and you could go even further. And what, like, the people and the stuff that they did that relates to them, you know, the ranch itself, other things to do with that, blah, blah, blah. It all, like, spurs off into other micro parts. So feel free to jump in the loophole, uh, the wormhole, the black hole, the deep hole, that is. Yeah. There's also, there's loads of movies on Charles Manson's life. There's loads well, there's of, like, a million a, things on this, yeah. Um, there's a recent movie, God, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's not accurate. It's not accurate, but it is about like Sharon Tate, and you do see the someone play. You do see Charles Manson in it, but it's not accurate, but it's related to it. Um, but it's a good movie. Go check it out. Um, yeah, that was this week's episode, guys. Uh, is your rep- is your week next week? 
Yeah, it is, and I, I, I won't be doing something as long as this. Cool. Or as big as this, probably, but, you know. Or not something that has as many loopholes, but, yeah. you know. As we said, delve into this if you want. You can get lost in a wormhole for days and days, all information. Exactly. But there's also, loads I of mean, there's also loads of books, so go check those out, because I've read quite a few books, too. Charles Manson and the Manson family, extremely famous, so there is going to be that massive loophole and wormhole of stuff. So. Exactly. But yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this episode. Also, thank you for 1.4k plays. Yay! Woohoo! We'll see you guys next week. And I've got a feeling that 2K Mark's going to hit a lot sooner than we think. Um, We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for joining us and bye. Bye.